Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, as always, sitting here with Arthur Black. What's going on, guys? Additionally, as always, we've got uh, some of the coolest guests around uh, today. We have the honor of speaking with Brother Cleave. Hey, how's it going? Doing well, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to be here in Indianapolis. I've yeah. been here in a long time. Yeah? When's the last time you were in through town? Uh, 1987. Okay, so <laughs> I, I was on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and we played at the uh, Market Square Arena. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Market Square Arena's gone, and sad to say, so is Tom Petty now. Yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, that's, that's a real yeah, that is a real bummer. bummer. You don't realize how ever-present he was until it's like... Until you realize there's not going to be any more. Mm, like, a lot ah, of good yeah, music. Right. Yeah. What, like 78, I think he dropped the first album? Is that right? Uh, I believe that's correct, yes. Yeah. yeah we, were on, we were on tour with him, 87. I was in a band, the Del Fuegos, at the time, uh, which uh, we did the first Miller Beer commercial. And Miller Beer Company gave us a lot of money to drink Miller Beer on stage. But uh, <laughs> Petty was a, he knew the, the Fuegos were big fans of his and talked about him in interviews a lot one night. We're in Hollywood, and uh, the guitar player and I were sharing a room, and the phone rang at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was Tom Petty. What are you guys doing? Want to come over to the house tomorrow night? And the rest is history. Next thing you know, he was like, want to go on tour with me? That's right. awesome. Hell yeah. yeah. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, yep. Arthur? What did uh, you have to drink last night, Cleve? I'm sorry, sir? What did you have to drink last night? Uh, let's see, I had, uh, I had an... Old fashioned with uh, bonded Heaven Hill, which I can't buy in Massachusetts. So I try to I try to collect as much bonded whiskey as I can get, especially when I'm in Indiana or Kentucky, which is where you can get them all. Uh, I had a uh, actually the bartender made me a a tiki drink of his own uh, creation, which was uh, pretty good. And uh, let's see, what did I have? After that, I went That's to cool. the Libertine after that and checked that out and. Uh, I'm not, I don't know. I had a couple of drinks there. God only knows what okay. they were at that point. <laughs> guys like you would be the, the guys I don't want to make a tiki drink, particularly of my own, like, concoction. I was uh, with Martin Kate in mm-hmm. Miami. Well, actually, we all were, what, about a year and a half ago at uh, Broken Shaker, and we had ordered a round of Mai Tais. Rebecca Kate was with mm-hmm. us, and uh, Suzanne Long, and a bunch of people. We were all standing there, and we ordered a round of Mai Tais, and... Um, Martin wasn't in there yet, but he walked up. He's like, oh, yeah, what are they having? My ties? Yeah, just ha- I'll have one, too. And the bartender's like, oh, right on. Cool, man. And then after he started to make the drinks, I think he realized who Martin was, and he got a little shakier with those tens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, very cool. Uh, what did you drink last night, Arthur? Um, I had a little bit of red wine, um, Southern Rhone, you know, Grenache base, oven sober was the appellation. So nothing too crazy. You? Very cool. Um, I actually got a little bit into that Plantation St. Lucia that I picked up in Paris. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, the the O five release. Yeah, it's um, it's beautiful. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I know that I probably won't get another bottle, so I don't want to. I don't want to drink it no, too quickly. Those, those are those are kind of gone. Yeah. So very very happy to have, have gotten to uh, got a bottle while we were in Paris, and yeah, that was fun. that was fun. So did you uh, go to Dirty Dicks while you were there? Yes, we did. Yeah, we were very, very impressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're amazing, amazing drinks. Um, mm-hmm. Could have used a little bit more air conditioning, but <laughs> I can say that about everywhere say, in Europe, pretty yeah. much. August in Europe could use a little more air conditioning. Uh, yeah, I, I just worked with those guys in Rome a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had Tiki by the Sea in, in Rome. In Rome, and uh, 
there's a tiki bar in an old castle on uh, Fregene Beach, which is the, the Rome waterfront there, and uh, they had those guys do a pop-up in it. That's a little bit what, like farther west of the airport, then, right? It, yes, yeah. exactly. It's right by the. It's about a twenty-minute ride from the airport. Yeah. Far out, man. That's that's real cool to like. Yeah. <laughs> so and that tiki bar is there all the time. So if any listeners out there, if you uh, find yourself in Rome, go to Fregene Beach and go to the tiki bar in a castle because I don't think there's another one of those anywhere in the world. Not yeah. that I've seen anyway. Yeah, totally. Well, man, we could do this. We could do a six-part episode easily. <laughs> So I'm going to try to keep it succinct and to the point. I know that you, uh, both of you, Arthur and uh, Brother Cleve, have a uh, have an, an event to do to this evening. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, where do we start, man? You know what I mean? Um, you know, for those of you out there that don't know who Brother Cleve is, and I hope that there aren't that many of you, and if, it, if there are, you guys are home bartenders and uh, haven't paid much attention. But, I mean, you've probably heard his music or his voice. Or had us drinks, <laughs> or any number of things, or perhaps even had uh, some of the liquor that you're representing now. So. Yes, indeed, Machu Pisco. So, um, but I first, I think, became aware of you because I've I've been in the restaurant business for a long time, but not very seriously on the cocktail side. Well, a lot of us haven't been for all that long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I first ran across you with Combustible Edison, which if yep. you're into tiki at all, <clears throat> you you've definitely run across. And even if you don't think you have, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the combustible Edison version of Spy vs. Spy was used in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes, it was. And also Four Rooms was scored? Scor- scored the entire film of Four Rooms. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. So you've been around the world quite a bit on tours, been. playing yep. music, Exotica. You were friends with Esquivel, which is mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. Um, used to go to his house and hang out with him for weeks at a time down in Cuernavaca. That's Mexico. crazy, man. Like to consider him amongst friends. Any uh, any cool stories you got <laughs> hanging down? In my, actually, my, my my favorite Esquivel story is, uh, does involve liquor. Uh, Esquivel had actually <laughs> stopped drinking for uh, quite a few years. He had fallen when he was about seventy four years old and uh, injured his back and was was bedridden. He couldn't get out of bed when I was down there uh, in the years the last eight years of his life. Uh, he could get into a wheelchair and, and get around that way, but uh, he didn't drink. And then one time I went back, and actually uh, the, the fellow who started uh, Combustible Edison, he goes by the name of The Millionaire. He, he came with me one time, as uh, my wife came along too. Is that kind of one of those, like, uh, dress for the job you want <laughs> names? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly, yeah. He was not a millionaire uh, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, only in his dreams. But... Uh, he, uh, they, they came down and uh, all of a sudden he was like, Could, would you like a cocktail to the three of us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he, he got, had to ring a little bell for the nurse to come. And he would go, go into the closet and get my vodka. And I said, oh. And I said, are you having one? And he's like, yes. I said, when did you start drinking? I'd been going down there for about a year or so before, at that point. And he's like, oh, I just decided, why not? And I said, yeah, well, cool. Yeah, why not? You do take a lot of medication, though, for your back. So, uh, But, but uh, I said, so what are we having? And he, he had some fresca there, which is a big drink in, uh, in Mexico. And he said, vodka and fresca. I said, oh, okay. He said, it's the new taste sensation. <laughs> I thought, I wonder, is that on a TV commercial down here or what? Uh, you know, uh, that was just brilliant. And... Uh, that's Con- a moment you wish you had a mic. Is, uh, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually 
drinking with Esquivel now in his bedroom. You know? Yeah, that's um, a lot of coolness happening at one time. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you played what? Vibes and keyboard? Keyboards. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I, I, for some reason, I had vibes in my head. I, been listening I mean, I, a little I, bit. I actually can play them because well, it's built like, like a keyboard. Right, I know where right. the notes are, but, yeah. uh, but I'm not going to put Cal Jader out of a job. So, <laughs> right. So, uh, well, you might these days. <laughs> yeah, I might these days. Yeah. Not working a lot these days. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I mean, you spent time DJing as well. Mm-hmm. I recently heard that, uh, and, and listeners out there that thanks think that we're going to be talking about cocktails we, we will we'll get to that but, oh yeah but I, I don't get too many opportunities to sit down and talk really geeky ticky with uh well exotic musicians at all so um but i heard you were doing some sort of like uh remix project with uh like bollywood uh music uh yeah Interesting. yeah i um so we got kind of obsessed with with bollywood both the millionaire and i and miss lily banquette um there's a song, uh, John Patch and Ho, which uh, is well known to uh, people around the world now because it's all the, people wearing Zorro masks and dancing, and it was in the movie Ghost World. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting, I'll, I'll tell the story quickly. It was discovered by the Cramps, who uh, oh, cool. Lux and Ivy lived in Glendale, and there was a, a South Asian grocery by their, by their house, and they would r- rent these movies all the time. And this is actually the first scene, the opening scene of this movie, Gumnam. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, Ted Lyons and his Cubs, it says on the on the kick drum, and it was the wildest thing I had ever seen. I'd seen a lot of Bollywood things in Indian restaurants back in the uh, in the '80s, you know, when the VC VHS came out. Yeah, yeah. These things, but I had never seen anything like that. I lost my mind completely. Uh, cut to uh, ten years later, and I'm in India, and I have a record deal uh, there with my band that I still play with called the Sings S I N G H S. Yes, the lead singer. And leader of the band is Indian, and uh, I was just buying all these records, and I I ended up uh, I got like, well now I have about a thousand, and I approached a couple of record labels about doing uh, compilations. Of, I call them Bombay Disco, and I've done two volumes of of that uh, on the Cultures of Soul label out of Massachusetts, and uh, sold a lot of copies. Worldwide, sold a ton in Germany and in England, and uh, the, we were not allowed to sell them in India. That was the the stipulation. We, you know, really? got oh, everything from EMI, so they license it through them. And uh, yeah, I did some remixes on a couple of twelve-inch singles of, of some of the stuff. I got to hunt some of that stuff down. I've got a couple of. Um, are you familiar with the two albums that Dan the Automator produced? Um, oh yeah, Bombay Bom- Bom- the, the Hard Way. way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, Kalyanji and a little bit of stuff. a little bit of that got that like Lalo Schifrin 70s. Yeah, sound. right. The, they call those movies brown exploitation, and uh, I have a lot of them because you get them on uh, VCD is the preferred format for uh, low budget yep. uh, drive-in type fare uh, in India. Oh, my wife's tired. So everything's all that. Right, it's <laughs> the same all through same South Asia everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I have a lot of those movies, but I, I love that stuff. It's to me, it's one of the most interesting types of music around because it's everything but the kitchen sink maybe even including the kitchen sink and the arrangements i'm kind of at a loss here because like i don't have the music trivia that you guys have <laughs> you, you take alcohol out of the conversation i got i don't, just, have, I don't have shit his yeah. brain shuts down <clears throat> well the, uh, most of these most of these dance sequences in the uh, in these bollywood movies all the bad guys uh drink vat 69 that's the big indian you know that, that's like the high class like oh we're drinking real scotch 
<laughs> not the not the uh, imitation scotch. Right, right. Actually, they, I mean they make fabulous uh, whiskey in in India and rum. I've, I've been I've brought Old Monk to uh, yeah to uh, actually in Boston. Uh, we we discovered that it was actually imported here. It was only being sold to liquor stores owned by South Asians. And my friend Jackson Cannon out in Boston maybe convinced one of the distributors to. That always bring kills it me in. when you find out that there's like somebody bringing really cool product in, but they just haven't followed through with a sales force right. to like get it out to distribution. Yeah. Um, the woes of the three tier system. Um, but as as important as you have been in the music world, which is I think safe to say prolific, but you're equally as prolific and important in the cocktail movement because you've been doing this for a, lo- a while. Like, and Long I mean, time. we're talking. I mean. It goes back to like Dale DeGroff era. Like yeah. you were doing things Same up, in, and you were in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. You were. Um, that's where you live now. But you're you were yeah, there the whole there, time, other yeah. than traveling, traveling all every the country. World, yeah. yeah, that's that's super cool. And so, I mean, you've got to see this whole cocktail revolution evolve from from the stage, from like was, uh, Blue Hawaiians. Was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, uh, imbibe uh, had a story on me a couple of months ago, and it was about seeing the cocktail. Uh, Revival or whatever you want to call it, start and really from the stage. Uh, Wasn't it like uh, what musicians or what bartenders can learn from musicians or something like that? Or was that? Yeah, I mean, we were because of the way that we were on sub pop records and they were marketing it. I mean, they made coasters. They made about two hundred thousand coasters that were promo that said combustible Edison. Every bar had them, and uh, uh, you know the. We had our signature cocktail, the Combustible Edison. The recipe was on the back cover of the album or inside the CD or cassette. Uh, Brandy, Campari, lemon juice. The Campari company all of a sudden said, why are we selling so many cocktails in places, so much juice in like Madison, Wisconsin or uh, a lot of these (laughs) college towns we were playing. Next thing you know, we had a Campari sponsorship. We were drinking Campari on stage every night anyway. So now, you know, they were making table tents for the, the drink and uh, giving us free booze and giving bars discounted uh, uh, cases you sure, know, yeah. to, uh, to sell the, the drink. A lot of places you would get a free combustible Edison cocktail with the price of your ticket, which was happening on the, when the first album came out in 1994. It's a good way to ingratiate yourself with the uh, industry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the start of it. I, had gotten into, I got into cocktails at an early age. I, uh, I had my first Manhattan when I was eight. Uh, Thanks to my grandmother. Your grandmother made you Manhattan. Yeah. Well, she she had one and she <laughs> gave it to me because I said, "Can I taste that?" And she said, "Yeah." So my grandfather said, "Don't do that. He'll get the taste." And sorry, Grandpa, you were right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and completely proven correct yeah, at right. this point. But as a as a young punk rocker in the '70s, I was drinking Manhattans and old fashions at uh, you know at the Rat where I was playing in Boston, and uh, uh, I was just kind of a weirdo that way everybody else was well i mean i liked i drank beer too but you know i always liked drinking cocktails and uh when i was on tour with the del fuegos the first tour that i was on in 1985 we were in cleveland ohio and uh in a diner having lunch on the back cover of the menu said try a refreshing cocktail and there were a hundred drink names on there and i said wait a minute there's only 20 cocktails what are all these other imposters here what is it what the hell is a sidecar and uh I had no idea that there were so many drinks. And I, when I left that diner, I went in and um, I bought an old Mr. Boston bartending guide and a Barnes and Noble or whatever it was <laughs> at the time, and just kind of went from there. I was on the road, you know. You go. I spent all my 
free time during the day if, if you have it, if you're not driving, going to used record stores and used bookstores and, and Salvation Armies and Goodwills and stuff like that and find all these old cocktail books and ephemera and records. Do you have any idea of how many you have, how many that's books a, and albums? It's you around have. 500 uh, books, cocktail books or cocktail related books. Uh, you know, I've collected stuff like the History of Prohibition, so I got a dozen of those or so. Records right now, uh, I'm down some. I sold about 14,000 in the last oh my God. 12 years. Uh, I just had to, I kept moving to smaller places. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, and well, you know, I, I had a regular job as a DJ spinning like four nights a week in Boston. And then I had regular gigs in St. Bart's and the French, French West Indies and in Paris and in Moscow and in London. Uh, and I DJed around the country too, so uh, in New York quite a bit. So I was buying records every week, electronic, you know, dance music. You go in and like, you know, listen to everything that came out that week and come out with another stack. So I had thousands and thousands of dance records that I was like, well, probably not going to play these again. And uh, you know, I, I regret a few things I've sold over the years, but you know, where the hell do you store all that? I mean, that's between that's why I had to keep uh, downsizing. The, the books oh, and, the, and the vinyl alone, Jesus. Oh, let's not even talk about the bottles. <laughs> yeah. Good my, point. my new house, I have one room that is a bar, and uh, most of the bottles are in there. I actually have a garage now. I moved out of the the, the city of Boston and and. Uh, I live about 10 miles south. So I have a garage, and uh, that has bottles in there. And then I have a basement where my DJ setup is, and there's records there. There's records on all three floors. And uh, I have a vermouth chiller in the basement. Uh, of course. I'm that kind of douchebag. Who and doesn't have a vermouth chiller? Yeah, right. Actually, I, I say that knowing full well that I just put a cooler in my new house for that express purpose as well. Yeah, yeah. It's good to, it's yeah, good to have, you, think you know. You have, you know. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think I have about 10,000 records right now. Well, that's not as many as I would have thought, but you just sold 14,000. Yeah, so. yeah, but I'm buying them all the time. <laughs> Is that right? Just uh, moving some in, moving some out? Yeah, yeah. But how did, like, the music, like, so you were, you know, working with, you had your Campari sponsorship and all that, but, I mean, you made that transition full-time at some point to, like, being behind the bar. Yeah, well, uh, so the band I was in in the 80s, the Del Fuegos, they broke up in 1988, and a friend of mine was just opening a, he had a restaurant that was inside a bar where, you know, he leased space, and he was getting a, his own spot. He had investors that were opening it up for him, and he was going to have a, a bar in there, and he said, well, you know, you're out of work right now, your band broke up, you don't have a job, you want to be a bartender, and you can make all these old drinks that you're obsessed with and, and, and sell them and uh, I did did they sell in 1988 no I, I you know and Dale DeGroff and I have talked about this because we started the same year doing this stuff but I was next to Fenway Park and he was at the the uh, world you know the uh, Rainbow Room in right, Rockefeller yeah, yeah. Plaza so def and you know there, there was always a, had been a cocktail culture in New York and when he started there there was all this word around people that were at that time like say in their 60s that remembered the 1940s and 1950s and that that era of the cocktail and they go oh there's this guy at the rainbow room and he's bringing back all these old drinks that we haven't had in 20 years so how right did that place, translate to boston though did you have uh, that same client base no or? no we didn't and it was you know i mean basically somebody would come in and uh, my my first day on the job guy came and said 
the fuck is a sidecar? I said, oh, it's brandy, quancho, and lemon juice. He said, great, I'll have a Bud Light. And, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> went like that, you know. Never uh, rum and coke. Yeah, yeah. I did have, I had a guy named Lefty who had no left arm, and uh, <laughs> he drank rum and Cokes, like he'd drink them 40 at a time. Uh, at, uh, so, lefty yeah. with no left arm, yeah. millionaire with no millions. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, well, I am uh, your brother Cleveland, but it's actually the Reverend St. Dr. Brother Cleveland Donut Duncan III, Esquire Jr., and I am an ordained minister in the Church of the Subgenius, and I've been preaching the gospel of the Almighty Cocktail since 1985. <laughs> People have listened. It took a little while, though, you know, and I mean, even. As that wave kind of the resurgence stretched across the country because of the work that like you and the Groff done way before. Not gonna try to age you here, but when I was in Oh, I'm an old motherfucker. In those young young days <laughs> in, in what eighty eighty six I was ten. So yeah. but um you know, we even in like oh four, oh five, it was rare to see a lot of that stuff, even on a lot of cocktail menus, and especially in the Midwest, we can tend to be a little bit behind the coasts as things move inwards. But it it was a tricky situation. You almost had to be a little combative and say, like you said, you know, a gentleman comes in and wants something and you've got your specialized cocktail list and you kind of yeah. have to nudge them into that and like not really be an asshole, but there was kind of a, a, a section of time there where there really wasn't a, a good way to approach it and still be hospitable. You kind of had to retrain guests that like, yeah, there's some right. great drinks out yeah. there. So, I mean, how did that process go and how long was that? For uh, you? Well, actually... We didn't, we didn't have that happen. No? Uh, and it was, so it was interesting. Uh, Tales of the Cocktail a couple of years ago, uh, Tanqueray did a seminar called The Godfathers, the men who uh, created the cocktail revival. And it was Dale and Paul Harrington who wrote the cocktail column in Wired Magazine in the 90s and, and me. And what happened in Boston, I mean, the, the, the whole cocktail thing really starts in San Francisco. That's where there was a place called Bix. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first places that was doing these, all these old cocktails. The, I still have an old menu from there from like 95 that lists the, the drink and then tells you what book it was from. Oh, that's and cool. I'm going through it. Go, yeah, I got that book. I got that book. I got that. <laughs> oh, here's how. 1928. Shit, I don't have that. Oh, I finally got it. It took me 16 years. But, uh, you know, we, were, uh, we had a bar, the B-Side Lounge. I had been getting written about in the, in the press for, I had a cocktail party, a weekly cocktail party that I did (coughs) called Saturnalia, and it was in a a club called the Lizard Lounge. I DJ'd stuff like Esquivel and Combustible Edison and that type of stuff, and my partner in crime there was a lovely, lovely young woman who's still one of my dearest friends, Misty Kalkofen. And Misty is now the brand ambassador for Del Maguey. I was going to say, she's Del Maguey now. Yeah, right. But she was a, whatever she was, 20-something-year-old bartender, and... uh, She's from Wisconsin, so she knew how to make an old-fashioned with, uh, with brandy and ginger ale, or Sprite, <laughs> right. I mean. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I wrote the cocktail list, and she was the bartender, and uh, you know, we created this whole kind of, it was lines down the street every Thursday night, people waiting again, and it got a lot of good press, and I was getting good press as this cocktail guy. And people were coming out to try these drinks. But it really starts with the high-tech community, uh, we were right by in Cambridge, Mass, and not too far from MIT and from Harvard, and all these tech nerds and guys at startups uh, read Wired magazine. And they would come in to the bar, and then I started this place, working at this place, the B-Side Lounge, 
which was the first kind of craft cocktail bar uh, in Massachusetts. And people would come in from the high-tech community with printouts from the website, because there were no smartphones, and printouts of the website from, from Paul's column. What is this paper stuff? <laughs> right. Yeah, right, I know, exactly. Or I had two guys that would come in every week, they had index cards, and they'd be like, Oh, can you make us Satan whiskers? I'll take it uh, straight and he'll take it curled, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and they'd all have all these index cards of, like, they're getting obsessed with all these old drinks. So, and it was all tech people uh, at that time. So we didn't really, people were coming in, you know, we were the first ones to serve Manhattans with, with rye whiskey. There were only three rye whiskeys available in Massachusetts at the, the time, Old Overholt and Jim Beam and Wild Turkey. And we used Overholt, and people would come in, and, oh, Manhattan. And, you know, nobody had used bitters for, for years. I mean, the first Manhattan that my grandmother gave me was, was uh, probably Canadian Club or Seagram 7 and uh, sweet and dry vermouth, the perfect Manhattan, but vermouth that had been sitting out on the rail for probably right, three right. years and no bitters, you know, and ice, you know, and shaken. So, uh, you Gosh, know, in the late nineties, man, we always had that one bottle of Angostura bitters that nobody knew exactly why it was there yeah, right. or what to do with it. If, you know, the only thing we ever did with it was to get some tonic water, throw a little bitters in there. If somebody was having a cold, got an a cold stomach or, or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we had no idea what, that, I mean, now it's like, you know, yeah, I know we order a, by the case, it's but a, it's a bitters wonderland out, <laughs> out there. Um, yeah, it's, it's and it's which is great, but very interesting to see how all this stuff has has gone about. And the music side too, you know, when Combustible first went on tour in '94, you'd play shows, and there might be two or three people there that kind of got it. They had their thrift store finery on. The girls were always trying to look like Audrey Hepburn. The guys were always trying to look like James Bond. They'd be sipping a martini. <laughs> uh, there might be one or two. And it was always like one or two guys that would have a suit coat on and jeans and sneakers, but they, and no tie or anything, but a, they'd have a suit coat and they'd have a. Um, Is that like from like Phil Collins or something? <laughs> 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 the, you know, these guys would have uh, something going, uh, uh, um, some sort of cocktail, a conical glass. And then eventually, you know, the tours would go on and then you'd see more and more people. And by the time actually we got to, so San Francisco and Los Angeles, they were like, they were ready. We were, we were like the Messiah has arrived. They were like cocktail mania out there. Because San Francisco always had all these cool cocktail bars. I mean, before places like Bourbon and Branch, they're just like the Owl Bar and all these really cool places in the Tenderloin and in the Financial District especially. Uh, and they had Trader Vic's, you know. Uh, they had a Trader Vic's downtown and the one over in Oakland or Emeryville now. So they had a tiki culture there yeah. that dated back to 1934. And uh, Hollywood, of course, you know, Don LaBeachcomber, 1934 as well. And uh, uh, Musto and Frank's still there. And it was, it got to be, it was a cool thing in Hollywood to go to these old school places in the, like the Hotel Roosevelt and uh, old Hollywood. And New Hollywood wanted to go and hang out in these places. And, you know, when we were doing the movie Four Rooms with, with Tarantino and Allison Anders, you know, you go to these places. Mark Mothersbaugh we worked with. And I remember being at Mark's house one night. And he, he said, Cleve, you're the cocktail guy. Can you, can you make us some cocktails? I said, yeah, Mark, what do you got? He said, well, let me show you. And he had six bottles of grappa. He had just got back from Italy. He goes, you ever had this stuff? I said, yeah, it's awesome. 
He goes, what can you make with it? I said, grappa. <laughs> <laughs> I can pour you one neat. I said, uh, give everybody a glass. I'll go around and pour it. <laughs> no, he's very he, nice. I mean, he had some awesome grappas there, but, you know, that was, uh, that was 1995, you know. Uh, so... Uh, People were into you had, that. back when you had to go to Italy. To, yeah, yeah, yeah right, 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 right. And you know, it's, we were we were friends with. Well, I had known the guys from Devo because through the Church of the Subgenius, they were members of that as well. So, uh, uh, but there was that. So you know, Pee Wee Herman and uh, you know the whole. I mean, Mother Spot did that theme, which was basically a rip of uh, Martin Denny, like yeah, Quiet yeah. Village or whatever. And there was Exotica music. There were people there. I mean, there's a guy. I'd, I've known for years Byron Werner, who's the guy that coined the term Space Age Bachelor Pad music and made a cassette of all these records and gave it to Devo when they played it at the beginning of their tour in 1981 all around the country. So that was like kind of roots of of all of that stuff. Well, I've followed you quite extensively, not only just because of what you've done, but again, the tiki side of that, in which you've definitely carved a, a nice name for yourself on the cocktail side and music side, but... You said like 81, you know, they're passing around the Space Age uh, Bachelor music, but the a lot of those drinks were still like, obscure, uh, I can't even use that word, obscured by that at that point. Yeah. They're still, um, because they're you didn't really start to see like, well, I mean, a lot of the, what you see nowadays is because of the work that um, Jeff Berry put into mm-hmm. kind of digging out. Okay, well, what is Don's mix number right, right. four thousand eight hundred and twenty-two? You know, that took him years. So, like, I mean, at what point did you switch from the exotica and such? Because you said that was early '90s when you're playing with Combustible Lettuce and the, like, and getting into the tiki drinks themselves, like, because that would have been pretty early on. So, uh, well, for me, for the tiki end of, of it all, that that started really early for me. I, I was um, I was seventeen years old. I'd been playing in bands professionally i mean making money from it since i was 15 and i had been hired my band got hired and i was, I was playing with older guys and we we got hired to play <laughs> one on. would assume right yeah. it's, it's, here sorry guys we got to wrap up the gig by 6 30 we're going to <laughs> high school tonight uh but we got hired to play a, a high school prom at a place called the kowloon now I think you guys can probably figure out what the fuck I'm talking about here when I say Kowloon. It's just, it's still there. It's been there since 1948. It's this giant, originally Polynesian, tiki restaurant. They've expanded and they've been able to stay in business because they have like a comedy club and a sushi bar and a Thai <laughs> restaurant and everything else under one roof. Uh, but we played there, and at the end of the show, the owners, still the same owners today, the Wong family, uh, they brought us downstairs and gave us a poo-poo platter and a, and a scorpion bowl, and I. They didn't didn't bat an eye that I was not old enough to drink. Life was different in the '70s, probably a lot better for many reasons. But uh, <laughs> but what, you know, nobody cared. Sex, drugs, exotica, rock and roll, yeah. punk. The only bad nobody thing was cared. disco. <laughs> yeah, unless you were talking Bollywood disco. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm a big disco fan myself. Even as a young punk rocker, I I would sneak into discos I've got thousands sneak, of discos sneak in yeah. because of the management or sneak in so your friends didn't catch you uh, well <laughs> sneak in well actually no there, there were a lot of punk well there were punk discos by the late 70s I, I played the Mud Club in New York City uh, in 1980 and that was uh, the biggest punk disco in the world not, not size wise yeah, yeah, right, right, right. but, uh, but reputation wise 
and uh, punk disco. <clears throat> Yeah, like we missed know, that the, era. Oh. Of course, then again, we had the hair metal when we were growing up. Oh so, yeah, yeah. It's oh, you guys missed the, the, oi, 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 the contortions punk. and uh, James James White and the Blacks and uh, all the sort of uh, yeah, the punk became dance music in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and kind of a little bit of a morph there. Four on the floor with angular guitars and twelve uh, inch remixes, and yeah, mm, totally different image than the Bee Gees. Yep, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you don't uh, you don't have to wear the, as many sequins when you're doing. Uh, no, 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 just sort of black black leather, you know. But, uh, black leather works. Yeah. You know, get, get get the Rob Halford look. But I that, I drank that Scorpion Bowl and we got another and I said I I want to drink this every day for the rest of my life. And fortunately for me, they the next year I turned 18 and they a week after I turned 18 they lowered the drinking age to 18. Oh, right on. And uh, I went right back to the Kowloon. And also the Aku Aku and all, all these places that we had a, so many places in, in greater Boston. Otto von Stroheim, who started Tiki News magazine in 1994, and he's the creator of the Tiki Oasis that happens every August in, um, now in San Diego. But he, he and his wife came to visit us uh, probably about 1998 or so. And he could not believe that I could walk out my front door and walk 10 minutes in any direction and get a Mai Tai. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, you, you were definitely the right place at the right time. Because yeah. while the rest of the country, those places had shuttered up and nobody knew what the hell it was. Yeah. And they're making Mai Tais with pineapple juice and grenadine and well, whatever. That, that <laughs> yeah. was still happening. <laughs> but, you, but you had access happening. to guys that had no. opened these places 40 years before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but not so, you know... The, the trick was, it, it, took a, it took Jeff Berry to change the world, uh, and he did. And he got those original recipes because nobody, you know, Don steamed the labels off all the bottles. Nobody knew what was in these drinks. Hmm. And, uh, and I would go around, and uh, Jeff and I have bonded over this over the years because it's like, you know, remember when you used to go into these places and ask what was in the drinks? And they just go, rum and fruit juice, rum and fruit juice, rum and fruit juice. And you go, <laughs> yeah, but what rum? What fruit juice? There's, there's more going on here. And it took... You know, when he met Ray Buen at Tiki Tea in Los Angeles, which Ray had worked for Don the Beachcomber in the 30s, and he had the little black book. And it had, they, you know, these guys eventually figured out not everything, like Don's Mix. Nobody knew what the hell that was. But, you know, they knew the different rums and, and the, you know, what Orgeat was and what Falernum was and things like that that they had learned over the years. And that's how those guys kept working. Uh, if you've read Jeff's book, Sip and Safari, he tells the whole story of how all these guys kept these little black books and they never told anybody the recipes either. And then they, that's how they would get continuous employment all around. Uh, Trader Vic wrote his recipes uh, down, but he never wrote the Mai Tai recipe until he wrote his autobiography in 1977. Frankly speaking, it was the first place where he actually puts down the recipe on paper and tells the entire story of the 17-year-old Ray and nephew, the legendary thing that for years people said didn't exist. And then the 15-year-old and the Karuba and finally using the uh, uh, Martinique rum yeah. in it. And uh, the St. James was what, what he used originally. So, uh, so the Mai Tai recipe was not really known. He had written like the you know, Fog Cutter and some of his other recipes were published in his 1946 guide and his 1972 guide. But... Uh, and he was a big Pisco fan, which is, uh, is good for me. So uh, they sponsored me this year. Trader Vic sponsored me at, at Tiki Oasis, and I've uh, 
been learning more and more about Victor Jules Bergeron. Uh, I've been working with his granddaughter, Eve, and uh, seen a lot of different ephemera and photos that had never been published before that I now have in my traveling roadshow that I do, Tiki, The Rise, The Fall, The Resurrection, The Redemption, which I've been bringing, uh, now I can say around the world, because that's what I did in Rome a couple of weeks ago. The, um, I don't know if you are aware of this or not. Uh, well, obviously, you are aware of Stephen Crane being from Indiana, but yep. he's buried just about an hour outside of the city. Um, you know, I, I, I have read that. Now that you mention that, that does come, come back to me. Did they have a Contiki here in Indianapolis? No. I had one in Boston. I used to go to Contiki Ports was the one in the, right. the Sheridan Hotel. Vic had the, the closest one would have been Chicago. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I forget which Contiki that yeah, was. They I, all had another, you know, a, yes. an adjunct to the, the name. I've got a couple of um, copies of menus, but I, I don't have them handy. But yeah, we, um, well, Martin was here. Mm-hmm. Martin Kate was here about a year and a half. Well, maybe about two years ago now. And a bunch of USBG members uh, got, we got a bus chartered and went up to the gravesite and had flasks of jet pilots and, uh, ah, very good. And got to, uh, Got to have some drinks there, and then um, Martin took his luau, uh, which uh, listeners out there, please look into Stephen Crane, especially if you're from Indiana. Uh, It's a part of history that gets forgotten. Uh, A lot of people don't even, A, realize who he is, B, uh, how important he was to the tiki world, but definitely that he was from here, married Lana Turner. Twice. Yeah, right. Um, Very, very cool story. One for each... uh... Continue, yeah. sir. Yeah, right, right. She was known as the sweater girl to uh, your listeners out there who don't know who Lana Turner was. And if you just uh, do an image search on her, you'll you'll understand <laughs> what I'm referring to right now. Like I said, we we're, we we have the E for explicit. We can say practically anything on here as we've tested the waters repeatedly. Right. <laughs> I think I've only been censored twice, or uh, beeped, or edited that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, beeped once and then cut twice. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, Some, you know, occasionally I, when we don't record at this time of the day oh, and yeah. drink coffee, yeah, we're, it's, I'm drinking it, water. The later yeah. in the day that it gets, mm-hmm. it <laughs> it can get rough, as evidenced uh, by my behavior and Arthur's behavior on occasional episodes. Yeah, and I'm I'm sort of uh, uh, let's just say I've spent quality time with the the, the late great Rudy Raymore and Blowfly, and I have. Uh, huge collection of uh, party records and have been into that stuff since I was about 15. Oh, right so, on, man. Uh, my language is usually, well, I've already said motherfucker once and I usually oh, say it you? every oh, other. Oh, we say we didn't even yeah. know. So, yeah. You know. Well, yeah, because I just say it all the time, you know. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Like, I, I, I curse so often I don't even realize <laughs> yeah, when it's inappropriate right. anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, I get shushed by my sister around my niece and nephew a lot. I'm like, well, oh, they're going to hear it eventually. Might as well teach them now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so now that like we're we are in full swing, you you'd be hard pressed to go to any city and practically any restaurant and not find a halfway decent at minimum bar not, program. Right. I mean, how do you feel that, like where your place is as part of that kind of resurrection? You know, I, I know it's always hard to think about it in the at the moment, but as you look back at some of the work that you've done and some of the people you've worked with, yeah, it's well, it's it's been interesting uh, you know we, we, we none of us going on the back of the book you know been yeah, interesting. it's been interesting you know and I, I have i've known you know touring with combustible is how i met otto von stroheim and jeff berry and ted hay and that whole los angeles 
cocktail tiki mafia, Sven Kirsten. Uh, you know, these guys have been friends of mine since 1994. And, uh, you know, I've known Dale for a number of years. We're, we're very friendly now. Dave Wondrich is a really good friend of mine. Uh, you know, a lot of, I've, I've had uh, drinks with, with Maury Stenson uh, out nice. in uh, Seattle. Seattle yeah. You know, it was kind of like the meeting of the minds there. You know, I walked in and said, some people tell me I'm the East Coast of equivalent of you. And he's like, he's like, who are you? <laughs> I told him, he's like, oh my God, oh my God. He's like announcing it to the whole room. Uh, so that was like, it was flattering, you know, that, the, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as some celebrity or anything like that, but uh, I, but I do appreciate give, being given a free drink for celebrity <laughs> status, right? Who doesn't? Free drinks are always appreciated. But I, I think that, you know, just watching this whole thing happen, none of, you know, when we first went out on tour with Combustible Edison, we had no idea what, what it was going to be like we had a cult following uh in boston or actually i joined them they already had a keyboard player and a drummer who did the first couple of albums with them but those guys wonderful guys but they had day jobs and they were like i can't go on tour i'm not going on tour me i had been on tour since 1985 but this was 1993 i'm like sure i'll go on tour i love this music i have all the martin denny records and the esquivel records and les baxter and uh, i had already done a um no, actually, I hadn't done any, any compilations at that point. I did a crime jazz compilation for Rhino a couple of years later, uh, 95. But um, I had been collecting records, uh, you know, and I knew all this stuff, and I just started playing, and the millionaire said, I don't know how much money we're going to make. I don't know what's going to happen out there. People may hate us. They may throw stuff at us. And we were on Sub Pop. <laughs> Our booking agent also booked Nirvana, and he booked Sonic Youth, and he booked Dino Jr. And so I was getting ready to say I can't imagine anybody going to a show and like throwing stuff at a band that's playing Exotica. But let me back up now and be like, yeah, if your if your booking agent would have put Nirvana opening Combustible Edison, perhaps some yeah, things right. might have been thrown. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, that didn't happen. We we went out. Uh, you know, we had opening acts. Many of whom were inappropriate. Uh, many of whom were bad. Uh, act, uh, it's tough. Jewel opened for us in San Diego uh. before she even had a record deal, and uh, that was. And, and then a hair metal band played after us, and it was kind of like, well, who put that bill together? That was very. I like see the crowd standing there. You got half the guys in fezes and Aloha shirts, right. and the other guys wearing tight leather pants, dressed like Rob Halford. Let's put together a gospel music and heavy metal show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Eventually, we, 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 we stopped allowing opening acts, and we made a movie yeah. called Opening Act, and we showed that. It was like a half-hour-long film, and that was our opening act. Opening act, that's amazing. Yeah, just literally do a two-hour movie of, of opening acts. Yeah, right, like, Here's right. how bad it can go, folks. Uh, but, you know, seeing, you know, saying, you know, when there's four people dressed like James Bond and Audrey Hepburn in the audience to having... Play, we used to play bimbos in San Francisco, which held 1,500 people. We would do two shows a night for, for four nights, or t two nights usually, some, actually three nights at one point. But, uh, you know, you figure 3,000 people a night, and everybody is drinking cocktails. And the entire room is just, people show up early, and there's a bar there. With, uh, the bar at bimbos is legendary because it has the, the, the mermaid in a, in a box, and it's a woman that's underneath, and she's half naked, the half that's not a fishtail, and uh, <laughs> just kind of rolling around. It looks like she's in a, in a fish tank, and it opens every... Oops, see, I just... Uh, <laughs> oh, you're uh, good. It, um, 
it would open about every 15 minutes or so, and then it would be like five minutes, and then it would shut, and then you couldn't see it, and it would keep people coming back. Oh, when's it going to open again? When's it going to open again? And uh, then she would come up and stand on the side of the stage, and of course we wouldn't recognize her because she wasn't naked anymore. But uh, it was just wild just seeing <laughs> all these people drinking. Sorry, cocktails. I wasn't looking at your face. I don't recognize <laughs> yeah, you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's in a fish tank, you know. <laughs> Uh, oh, is that what we're going with? We're going. We're with going, we're going to go with tank. the fish tank. Yeah, yeah. So uh, optical distortion. Yeah, but it was just wild to see all that happen, and then the entire audience is drinking. Everybody's drinking cocktails, and this is 1994, 1995, 96, before anything was really starting outside of yeah. San Francisco. Uh, Los Angeles. There were a few. There was actually a cocktail scene in uh, St. Louis was very interesting. There's one guy that had a restaurant was doing all craft cocktails. There's like these really cool little pockets. <clears throat> and, um, well, there's actually quite a, a bit of background on you in the book that was just released by Robert Simonson, mm-hmm. uh, A Proper Drink. And we definitely recommend our listeners to go check that out. It's pretty dense with a lot of names that you may or may not uh, recognize, but you can definitely get a history of the modern history of like how this got to where we are today why you can go into practically any restaurant in the country and mm-hmm. at least at minimum in the world of Manhattan, you know, like you can, they may not be able to make you a jet pilot or, or Mai Tai or whatever, but they definitely are going to at least know the minimums. Cause I remember in the nineties, if somebody came in and ordered a Manhattan, we were just like, dick, like <laughs> who are you? And your grandpa teach you this drink. Yeah. Right. And then, right. you know, it was only much later that we realized like, God oh, damn, man, that was a three ingredient drink. We could have made those all night so quickly. Right. Well, but you didn't have the third ingredient. The Angostura bitters, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the vermouth had still been on the rail for three years, opened. <laughs> and we definitely didn't have anything like pisco, which oh, right. Um, there, and- there was a pisco around at the time, uh, Inca pisco, which uh, I remember seeing it um, out in Las Vegas, where there's a Bonanza gift shop that has about a thousand uh, miniatures or nips, as we call them in Massachusetts, and they had it there, and it was like an Easter Island head was the bottle and I was like yeah it's tiki it's, got a, it's a tiki drink I gotta buy it it was a it was like a dollar and it was not very good uh, but you know south of the border spirits were not very good that right, was stuff that large. was exported at the time when I first started to work with Esquivel in 94 and I went to Mexico I'd never been to Mexico before that and I was that's a hell of a first trip yeah right and the woman from the record company picked me up in uh, Mexico City and we drove down to Cuernavaca uh, and we had lunch at this beautiful place, had peacocks all walking around. Uh, I'd never had anything but tacos for Mexican food, so I was like learning all sorts of things. And at the end of the meal, I got two glasses, two like two ounce glasses, and one was amber and the other was red. And I said, What do I do with this? And she said, Drink some of the amber and then follow it with the red. I said, Okay. And I took a sip of it. I said, What the fuck is this? And she said, it's tequila. Oh, no. She said, it's El Tesoro de Don Felipe. I said, well, what, what is that? She said, it's tequila. Is it tequila? I said, what have I been drinking for 25 years? <laughs> she said, oh, vodka with food coloring. Yeah. And a tiny, 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 tiny bit of agave. And uh, she said, you know, we call it Misto, and you call it, well, I'm not going to say the brand name, but you know, you, know what I'm, <laughs> you guys know what I'm right. getting at here. Uh, and that was before any blue agave tequila was sold in the United States. It was all Misto. And eventually, about a year or two later, uh, like Sousa brought Hornitos in as a, and I think that was probably the first agave tequila. It was certainly like the first mass market one. And then eventually you got smaller producers that were 
exporting their products and now we have thousands of tequilas available. Pisco was the same way. Cachaca was the same way. People didn't drink. In Peru, they drank Pisco sours made with vodka. Just like in, uh, in Brazil, they drink caipariñas as caipariscas with, with vodka in them. So, you know, the, these native spirits had gone by the wayside. They were considered old man drinks, like the Manhattan, or country liquor that was uh, too strong for the, uh, you know, sort of urban urbane palette, uh, but they started to come back, and Melanie de Trindage Asher, who was I met when she was at Harvard Business School in 1998, actually her professor was a regular at, the, at my bar at the B-side, and said, hey, do you ever have Pisco? And so well, one of my students is Peruvian, and she's going to bring back Pisco, make a, make a new craft brand of it, and I met with her, and she went to, she said, oh, I'm going back to Peru. I'll call you in four years. And uh, she did. And uh, she said, hey, remember me? Want to drink some Pisco? And I did. And I said, wow, this is not Inca Pisco, is it? This is, you know, it's <laughs> kind of like having that El Tesoro de Don Felipe. I was like, wow, this is actually good. This is really, really good. This is not like some sort of chemicalized crap. That's like, become you know? a passion of yours now. Yeah, yeah. I love Pisco. Uh, you know, I've, it, I love it as a bartender. It's, it's such a amazingly versatile spirit you can essentially anything that comes from a place with tro- with palm trees you can mix it with any tropical fruit any stone fruit any uh, berries any aromatized wines or uh, fortified wines uh, any you know all sorts of spices vanilla chocolate coffee ginger thyme rosemary sage blah 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 down the line it's really and it's a reflective type of drink unlike vodka you know if, you can make uh, whipped cream vodka or a dog yummy vodka or whatever because it just takes on the flavor of whatever you put into it. Uh, whereas Pisco has a, it's reflective. It reflects nicely what you add to it. And you can add all sorts of stuff to it. It's not just a summer drink with uh, Pisco sour, you know, which is a lovely drink. Uh, speaking of going to graves, we went to, uh, so Victor Morris uh, was the creator of the Pisco sour around 1916 or so in Lima. He was an interesting character. He was an American. He was a Mormon. He only had one wife, and he drank. Uh, and he was a bartender. That was the point of being a Mormon, if you only got one wife. <laughs> and drinking. I don't know. But he did it. And he, he also realized that Prohibition was going to be coming, and he was going to be out of a job. While other American bartenders were heading to London or Paris, he went to Lima, and he uh, created the Pisco Sour down there at the, the Mari Bar in Lima. But we went to his grave. Uh, Melanie and all these American bartenders that have won a bunch of Pisco competitions around the country and they were having a big uh, competition down there and I was brought in to judge it Uh, so we went to Victor's grave and we're all drinking Pisco and we're pouring it on the ground and everything and uh, somebody I'm not going to say who it was because he's a very well known bartender now but uh, he leaned on the grave and knocked the gravestone (laughs) over Oh man! And we were in there kind of illegally after hours, and the place was closed, and we're rushing. We're trying to put the gravestone back up, yeah. and everybody's half in the bag anyway. For, you know, oh, my God. So uh, at least you guys didn't do that to Stephen Crane. No, no, we did not. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that might take the cake on on that. But um, you're working. Are you working with, exclusively with Pisco now, or are you also doing some rum work? I, I've been well. I so my tiki seminar that I I do. Um, I have been I've been using 
doing it with different rum brands and also with Cachaca. I've been working with the uh, the guys from Avoir, Cachaca, Pete and Nate, who I I actually met before they they were still formulating it. They were trying to find a a, a, a Cachaca to get when I first met them. I think it was like 2011 in, in New York. Uh, so they do a thing called Tiki by the Sea every year. That it's a it, bartender's in, invitational. You have to uh, write an essay on why you should be invited to go to it and enter that. I think that usually takes place in like February or March, and then it takes place in Wildwood, New Jersey, in June every year. And I'm the opening act, uh, so I give this whole Tiki 101 uh, history of the entire Tiki thing from basically from 1925 when Don the Beachcomber heads from New Orleans to uh, to Havana and has his daiquiri, which is the actual correct pronunciation. I don't know where daiquiri came from. Uh, came from the Midwest, I would I would venture to say. It could Probably. be. It's a 60s thing. That I do know because my mother always called them daiquiris. She drank them. Really? Yeah. yeah. And nope. the town in Cuba is daiquiri. Right, daiquiri. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I like to use that pronunciation. Sometimes people don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I was going to say, to confuse the hell out of every bartender yeah, yeah, that's right, born in like right. the year 2000. I guess not quite yet, but we're getting close. We're getting close to having bartenders that were born at the yeah, right. new millennium. So between, uh, yeah, so doing the stuff with Avoir, and I, that's who we went to Italy with. Uh, but I've also been, done, been sponsored by uh, Appleton and uh, El Dorado. And uh, Plantation, quite a bit. I work with Plantation a, a lot. Uh, they've been do, I do USBG events with, cool. with them where I just do this whole thing for uh, USBG members and towns and uh, teach everybody the entire history of uh, Tiki. Then I have a second part of it that I do now. Actually, Martin had done it one year at uh, Tiki Oasis. He called it Tiki 201, and he took it from 2000. I br- essentially bring it up to, originally brought it up to, Jeff Berry and uh, Otto von Stroheim and, and Sven Kirsten in the late 90s. But now uh, Martin hasn't been able to do it the last couple of years, so they said, well, you can do it. I said, yeah. And part of my, the joy of my job now traveling all around the country is I get to go to every tiki bar that's out there and I take photographs of them. So I don't necessarily have to just steal images from uh, Google. Uh, I can take my own pictures and, and I meet all these people and now I can talk about all these amazing bars that are out there these days. There's so many of them. Just yeah, uh, I get, you guys are getting one uh, all over the place. Well, we, we're working maybe, on we're, we're, we're working, working on opening it ourselves. Yeah, no, I yeah. knew that. I but didn't, I didn't know how much you wanted. All, well, no, I mean, yeah, here. we're working on getting it going and we may have like we said at the top of the show arthur may be a tiki convert now that we've uh been to dirty dick and took him out we had some really fantastic drinks there we did we really did yeah those guys do an amazing job scotty and guillaume really yeah scotty actually was on his way to tiki oasis so guillaume was behind the bar that night oh okay, so yeah. i had never met him uh but Josh Davis up the bureau in Chicago mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, if you're gonna be in France, you gotta you gotta go see my buddy Guillaume at Dirty Dick." I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna go there anyway," and I had completely right. forgotten that because that had been a month and a half, month, two months before, and we mm-hmm. got to the bar, standing there to order our drink, and he was, you know, just being the super charismatic and yep. entertaining the guests and putting on a show behind the bar. And I looked at him, I said, "You must be Guillaume," and he said, "Yeah," and I said, "I'm friends with Josh," and he's like, "Get out." And he brought me back around behind the bar for a couple of pictures. Cool. And, uh, but yeah, he was real cool. And yeah. more free drinks, or some free drinks. Yeah, yeah we, right. we were drinking some uh, 
expensive. Well, we had some of the uh, Velier rums that were up on the shelf, oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't see them much here in the U.S., so no, only if somebody snuck a bottle back. Yeah, yeah, good, good work. Good but, work. Um, well, I know that you guys have an event to go to. Um, yeah, I would, and, and before we get a little bit closer to wrap up, I would be curious if just, you know, some of your thoughts about, like, the current cocktail culture. Like, what are we, where are we at now, and, and you know, where do we go from here, considering you've got, you know, three-plus decades worth of yeah, appreciation. Right, right. Uh, well, one thing I've, I've, I've seen a lot in my travels lately is uh, there's been a return of uh, classic cocktails on, on menus, and maybe they're not made in the... Uh, you know, completely uh, in the the way the original recipes were written. Uh, I've seen a lot of pe- people are making their own blends using uh, ingredients that are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes, mass market. Like, well, my my friend Thomas Watt took over the uh, Four Seasons in New York, and like his his martinis there are a blend of Tanqueray and. Um, uh, just went right out of my brain. Uh, Plymouth gins, and then he does a a, a Dolin and Nuali Prat vermouth blend, and then he blends his orange bitters, uh, which was a New York thing anyway. Jim Mian used to, you know, took took Fee Brothers and Gary Regan and mixed those for the the house orange bitters at PDT. So you know, a lot of that type of thing going on where people are, you know, rather than necessarily making their own gin uh they're uh you know or whatever they're doing that i think uh there's an article i think uh it was online i don't know uh earlier this week but it was talking about um uh bartenders blending their own rums you know for their house blend and they talked about cape perry up at rumba and their kind of house house rum and exactly that and then what we martin's book he's got with the herbster which is right like kind of what he didn't innovate but um, yeah, that's that's an interesting kind yeah. of direction. You're right. I didn't really think about it too much, but yeah. that is happening. I'm doing a lot it more. too. I got a. I've just opened a new bar. I, you know, I consult now and I create uh, beverage programs, and uh, so I I said, hey, that. Uh, but you know what? I've been doing it at home for years too. Like, oh, maybe if I do a little of this, a little, you know, you want to make your own depletions at home so you can get room for more bottles to come in. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll have to buy another house. <laughs> <laughs> But that's an interesting thing going on. Uh, you know, there's so many ingredients now that are, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'll tell you guys a quick story because it's, it's a great little Indiana thing. For years and years, I searched for orange bitters. You could not get orange bitters in America in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, I had all these old cocktail books and orange bitters are traveling all over the, the country and the world. Nope, nope. They took them out of the stores in the 60s, kid. You'll never find them. I was in Columbus, Ohio, playing a show, and uh, the restaurant that they would send you to get your hot meal for the day, uh, they had a table tent on the thing that said, try our famous martini, and it had whatever the gin was and the vermouth, and it said, and orange bitters, and I just bum-rushed the bar. I said, you have orange bitters? The guy's like, yeah. I said, wow, can I see them? And he was like, sure. I said, can I taste them? It's like, knock yourself out, kid, whatever you want to do. It's like, wow. I says, you can get these here in Ohio? He goes, nope. He says, you got to go to Indiana. And he <laughs> leaned into me and he said, they got everything in Indiana. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> so guess where I was going the next day? I was, I was on I-70. <laughs> I was on my way. I said, hey, we're playing in, I think we're playing in Bloomington. I said, first liquor store we see, or Packy, as we call it in Massachusetts, the for the packaged goods, you go, I gotta go to the packy. I'll be right back. Uh, <laughs> that was a good Boston accent for you. But 
we saw one, and I went in, and I said, hey, do you have orange bitters? And they said, of course. So, where? I said, right here. And there was like uh, bottles after, you know, it was the, and I said, I bought 10. They were 75 cents a piece, and it was the Collins brand that came in these little plastic bottles. And they were actually made in Chicago, but, uh, and I remember telling uh, Stefan from uh, Bitter Truth about Listening, and he's like, Collins, brand, they were the worst. And I said, I, I, what did I know? I'd never had orange bitters. And he's like, oh, that's a good point. And then a few years later, uh, I met Ted Hay in 94, and he said, he said, man, you live out on the East Coast. Don't you know Joe Fee? I said, no. He said, I'll give, I'll give you his phone number. He said, you call him. He's got orange bitters. He said, I'm working with him right now. We're going to make peach bitters. Said, Nobody's made those in 100 years. I said, oh, cool. So I got off tour, and I phoned the number and I talked to Joe Fee who's still a good friend of mine and he said yeah I'll send you out a couple of bottles and back in the day when everybody knew each other's phone numbers and yeah right, like, right there's like a handful of guys that gave a shit about the cocktails like hey what you don't know him when you had to memorize numbers oh yeah, yeah, right. yeah that's a whole nother story yeah right so that was uh, that was my Indiana and bitters uh, and uh, there were some other weird things that I got in Indiana that I remember uh, <laughs> that part like, I believe yeah there was <laughs> the, some stuff. the first time I found Pachuga which I'd been looking for for years it was in fucking Elkhart, Indiana. Wow. Yeah, at a packet store, and I serendipitously I was getting ready to do a tequila seminar, and I I had heard about Pachuga. I've been looking for it like it was just you know white whale. I think it's, it's a lot more common now, but um, I got all my shit set up and was just down looking at the shelves, and I looked up, and right there in front of me, Pachuga. Like, Holy shit! You know, I just started flipping. The guys in the store were like, they had never heard of it. You know, I'd just been collecting dust for a decade or something. Yeah, right, right, yeah. <clears throat> and they're like, hey, man, just have it. <laughs> they, just, they gave it to me. They're like, we haven't sold a bottle since we've been here, and apparently you're excited about it. So yeah. you never know. Booze archaeology. That's what uh, Jeff Berry and Ted Hay used to do that. They'd go down in, in, deep into Orange County and go to all these old liquor stores and find stuff like that that have been sitting on the, the shelf for, for years and I mean, that's the great thing now. You can get all this stuff. I remember looking for Parfait Amour for like 15 years after I read about it. And, uh, you know, in these old cocktail books. And Creme de Vette and, and uh, Pimento Dram. That was my high on my bucket list. I remember being in New York City in this old liquor store right by the Empire State Building. And I saw this one, no, two dusty bottles of Parfait Amour. They were still marked like four ninety nine or something like that. And I went up, I bought them, and the guy who was about 70, said, yeah, those have been here for a long time. And, and I, went I ordered those when I was 20. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they had been sitting there since probably the, the late 60s. And uh, I, was all excited. I was on tour with Combustible, and I gave the other bottle to the millionaire. And uh, you know, that's how we've remained friends over the years. <laughs> but, uh, it was great stuff. And now I can buy it, although they have changed the, the uh, <clears throat> formula on some of them, unfortunately. So we, um, you're in town. You were kind of working the market, mm -hmm. uh, visiting accounts, but you're also, um, as I will be, uh, going to Whiskey Fest tonight yep. at the Montage. Um, if you guys have never been to, to Whiskey Fest, um, 
Yeah, I don't know if it's sold out tonight or not. It usually, usually several hundred people there. Yeah. I think it is sold out, but by the time yeah. this uh, right goes, goes out, up, it'll be, be like pass, right. we can just say Whiskey Fest was incredible two weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> go next year. Um, yeah, next there year, will yeah. be whiskey there, and there'll be pisco there, and there'll be all sorts of other things there. Yeah, there's a lot of booze, there'll a lot of people. It's Ind- a- Indian rum and uh, Indian uh, whiskey. I know that will be there. My my friend Raj, who represents Amrits. Uh, imports that into the United States from southern India. So y- you can have that. Well, we should probably um, start go making to whiskey our way fest. in that direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go to should probably go that direction. So, Castleton. Um, right? Yep, heading up to Castleton. Um, beat traffic. Uh, we always ask everyone what um, what their favorite hangover cure is. Uh, Ice coffee. Yeah. All right, I can sign up for that one. That's a much less uh, strict regimen of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've lately taken to a lot of the coffee uh, in the morning on hangover days, like perhaps recently. <laughs> I've like moved away from my other standard regimen. Yeah. But, Which is the, the hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've got this whole whole thing with my B vitamins and all oh, this yeah, stuff. And yeah, I, I, used, I used to do that. My wife's a, a big gym rat, so she always got the like rehydration branch, yep. chain, of, branch chain amino acids and all that stuff. <laughs> There's that an stuff IV does, next to the bed. It works wonders, man, if you can like remember to put a glass of it next to the bed before you fall that's, asleep. See, that's the trick. Yeah, because otherwise yeah. you have to convince yourself to. It's like that old Mitch Hedberg joke, you know, it's like. Otherwise, I have to convince myself that I need to go to the kitchen to rehydrate, that the headache mm-hmm. won't be that bad. Like, yeah, it, it always is, but I'm not going to get my ass up to get water. Well, we will say that the one good thing uh, that the Cocktail Revival has uh, brought about is you're always getting served water in these the current wave of cocktail bars, uh, and they, they keep you hydrated all the, all the time that you're in there. And th- that never existed, uh, you know, in the... Well, I started drinking in bars in the... 70s so never saw that then or in the 80s uh hmm. so that's a that's a good thing well yeah but uh to be fair they were serving you sides of cocaine at the, in the well, 70s that, that, right that, yeah. the, that's that's true the 70s that's, that's, disco that's cocktails yeah. cocaine punk yeah. and <laughs> yeah did we miss yeah. anything that's it was less of a side. Know. It was more of a main dish than the, the side 70s dish. for me were much less fun. I was mostly uh, shitting my pants. Diapers. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, how can um, you got to have some kind of social media presence, I would assume. Uh, how can people follow you? Uh, well, on Instagram, it's at Brother Cleave. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Brother Cleave. I have a Facebook page that I don't really maintain. Uh, I have a, a woman who, uh, my friend Anna that uh, keeps it going for me. She's like, just let me know what gigs you got and where, what you're doing, and I just sort of let her take care of that. Otherwise, I would be on it all day long and get nothing done. So I've learned, learned a few things about myself. Uh, musically, Mixcloud. Oh, right on. You've got... Uh, Brother Cleave. I've got a whole bunch of mixes up there. And the Indian ones are actually on... Uh, so my Bollywood disco mixes are on the Cultures of Soul page that's the record label uh and they've got they do amazing stuff all sorts of they started out as a like a rare soul funk 45 repress label and uh now do all sorts of stuff we're hoping hoping to do a bombay disco three 
Uh, and oh, uh, I also write liner notes, and I have uh, done. Uh, there's a new album by Sun Ra, the legend. Wait, hold on. How is there a new album by Sun Ra? It's, well, it's well <laughs> a new compilation I, album. <laughs> well, actually, I mixed a brand new album. Oh, your your album. Okay, okay. No, I right. mixed a brand new Sun Ra album okay, that gotcha. was never released. That Follow was recorded you. in 1984 and uh, 85 in Boston. Right on. By Mari Starr and Michael Johnson, who were the you know new kids on the block, and uh, Johnson crew, their studio, uh, 24 track. We had six reels of two inch tape. Uh, we had to bake all those because it was fragile. The you know just oxide was flying. Uh, we had to record it into Pro Tools, but we mixed it analog. Me and Sean Slade, who uh, was uh, a producer of Radiohead and the uh, the Boss Tones and Hole and all sorts of uh, 80s and 90s punk. Uh, he and I mixed it. Uh, that should be out, I think, early next year. But right now uh, is a new compilation, three record set on Modern Harmonic, coming out uh, this month, called Sun Ra Exotica. And it's basically, Sun Ra was a huge fan of Les Baxter and Esquivel and Martin Denny and all that type of uh, space-age bachelor pad music. And uh, they talked about that in his biography. And my friend Erwin Chusid, who runs the Sun Ra estate, decided to do a compilation of stuff that is... Sunrise take on Exotica. It certainly is Exotica from another planet, from yeah, another world. Uh, literally. So these are all there. Are, there are some previously unreleased tracks on it. A three record set, colored vinyl, and uh, that's coming out this month. Modern Harmonic Records. So uh, translation, he is everywhere on the interwebs. <laughs> Just find Brother Cleave. There's probably not a second Brother Cleave. They- uh, no, although if you sometimes you'll find uh, it's like my brother, Cleve. <laughs> my brother Cleve. <laughs> like, well, just make sure you're getting the uh, the minister from the church or the subgenius. If it's not that, if it's not that, then it's not brother Cleve. Not yeah. the correct one. No, no, <laughs> the full name there. Yep. So, uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, thank it's, you. It's great to have you on the show, and hope to have you back on next time you come through yeah, town. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'd love to come and. Uh, do my tiki spectacular oh, for for sure for USBG and the, the fine folks here in Indianapolis, and I can buy more bonded whiskey while I'm here. And because uh, I've already filled up one suitcase, so uh, next time I'm bringing a, one of those TSA-approved travel bags for booze. <laughs> you give nice. me a heads up next time. I will personally drive down to Kentucky and bring back bottles for you. All right, whatever I need to do. But uh, yeah, absolutely, man. Um, well, again, thank you so much for those of you who want to follow us on social media. We are at Shifting Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Um, on Twitter, we are Shift underscore Drink. And uh, until next time, gentlemen, I uh, guess we don't really have any booze on the table to toast with at this point. So uh, enjoy Whiskey Fest, guys. Um, Thanks. And, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. And thank you. Thanks, yeah. Thanks a lot. It was awesome.